He says, at one point, and it's a very powerful line, Incartereso bioton, that is, I will endure life. He recognizes that he's never going to be the same. He will always feel grief for his wife and his children. He feels hurt by the gods that they caused this trouble for him. But nonetheless, life is worth living and he will endure. Today on Better Things, the characters of Heracles, Demeter and Prometheus each endured great trials and suffering. A classic scholar is here to tell us what we can learn about resilience from ancient Greek mythology. Here's Sonia. My name is Dr. Sonia Pertzanidis. I am from the Centre for Classical Studies at the ANU. I research on ancient Greek literature and I teach ancient Greek language courses. My special interest is in uh, Greek mythology, fables, drama and comedy. And I'm excited to be working in the field in which I've always had a deep interest and passion. Hmm. So with ancient Greek mythology, could you provide a bit of a background on that and what sort of time period are we talking about here? Greek myths were essentially stories and people shouldn't be at all put off by this this term myth because it's a very general term and that it encapsulates stories of all different kinds. And in ancient Greece, these were stories about gods and goddesses and heroes and and demigods and and major figures in, in ancient Greek culture and thought. It always focuses on uh, key figures in Greek myth. Um, figures like Heracles, Zeus, you know, the great family of Greek gods. But the stories themselves vary enormously in, in detail and in structure, but they're, they're essentially stories. And they were reworked and retold um, over the centuries. There, were, there was no fixed form of a particular myth. So myth is a very fluid uh, form. So the ancient Greek playwrights like Sophocles and Euripides and Aeschylus, they played with Greek myth. They took some of these Greek figures and they transformed their stories and put them into a different format to appeal to a large public audience who would have been sitting in an open-air theatre in uh, ancient Athens, an audience made up of foreigners as well as local Athenians. And these stories were retold and retransformed to appeal to that large audience. And they're they're fascinating stories as performances, but also in themselves. Mm. So was the main intention of these stories to serve as entertainment or something more? They certainly were meant as entertainment. Um, This was a festival culture in which these stories were performed. Uh, But they also had a religious function often to talk about the role of the gods in human life. And they also had a moral uh, function in terms of teaching people about behaviour and about what human life is like and how human life may be defined in comparison with the roles of the gods. Mm. Mm. So in terms of um, what we can learn from them and what they can teach us, what are some of the themes that the mythology and the dramas would cover? One of the big themes is uh, fate. So the Greeks were very interested in this concept that there are certain events that happen to us in life that are destined to happen and that we really have no control over. So in the case of Oedipus, for example, very famously, he was fated to marry his mother and kill his father. And there was nothing that he could do to change that destiny. And despite his attempts to avoid that fate, it still happened to him. 
So the Greeks um, are wrestling with this concept of fate and how it can impact on us. There are other big themes like uh, grief and love and the overwhelming power of love and uh, forces, those sorts of forces that are beyond human control in a way. So they tend to wrestle with some pretty big issues in human life. So one of the issues that we're here to talk about today is resilience. Yes. Did the ancient Greeks understand that concept in the same way that we do? That's a great question. The Greek verb that I'm going to rely on to express this concept of resilience is enkarteresso, uh, which is a verb that means to, to persevere, to hold out, to be strong. It's not a verb that is used very frequently, but it is one that comes up in uh, some of the tragedies that I'm going to discuss. So they certainly had an understanding of a concept of, of withstanding difficulties in life. And really, that's the essence of resilience, this concept that we have in modern times of uh, pushing on through the really big difficulties that life can throw at us. Mm. You brought up fate before, mm. and I kind of feel like that might muddy our discussion a little bit mm. because, I mean, if it's the case that they believed in fate and there was nothing that could change the outcome, then I feel like resilience is in conflict with that idea. It seems to be um, in that terrible things may be fated to happen to you. What you still have control over is your response to those events. And that's where resilience comes in, in the Greek stories. So how Oedipus responded to his tragic uh, situation, how other characters respond to the terrible things that happened to them, that is what will be a testament to their resilience. Mm. Mm. So resilience is a quality that I think some people probably have more naturally than others or it comes to them a bit more naturally than others, but it is also something that we can cultivate and I guess that's part of the reason why we're talking about them now because there are certain, um, I suppose, lessons that we can draw upon from ancient Greek mythology and the dramas, things that they can teach us about how we can cultivate resilience. That's right. So... Uh, there is a lot of talk about this concept of resilience at the moment. People are talking about building resilience in children in the educational context. We're talking about building resilient workplaces and we're talking about resilience in the face of environmental disasters, economic disasters, that is building resilient communities and nations. So this word is being used a lot in the modern context and it's well recognised that it is a quality that, it, that is worth cultivating in people. Now, the way that the American Psychological Association defines it is that it is a process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress. So it's not the same as being impervious to stress. It's not the same as blocking off all responses to a difficult situation. Quite the contrary. A person may feel incredibly uh, affected, deeply grieved, um, but they will then work through that trauma and that stress and, and, and find a way to continue now, the way they do that, it is said in the research, is through a combination of personal factors and external factors. 
So the sorts of personal factors that can come into play are your educational background, the level of support that you have from your family and your friends and your loved ones, your own outlook on life, whether you tend to be a, a positive sort of person, a hopeful person who views life as, as meaningful. So those are the sorts of personal factors. Then there are a whole lot of external factors that can come into play as well. And they are more related to the resources that you can draw on in the external world. So can you get um, the help that you need? Do you know how to uh, utilise resources in a useful way for yourself? Now, someone may have innately in their upbringing and in their family life uh, certain personal resources that cultivate resilience, but that doesn't mean that you can't learn to be resilient. And that is a really important thing that's come out of the research. So we can learn to be resilient through having um, a positive attitude, a hopeful attitude, knowing that things will change eventually, being hopeful um, and utilising the resources around us. In terms of the ancient Greek stories, what is interesting is that resilience research has looked at resilience cross-culturally in terms of comparing resilience across modern cultures. What it hasn't yet done is look at resilience cross-temporally. And I'm interested in the question of, did resilience mean the same thing for an ancient Greek in their stories as it does for a modern person? And are the two concepts um, relatable? And I think they are. I think we can actually see in these Greek myths and stories that resilience for the ancient Greeks meant much the same as it does for us today. And therefore, there's much to learn from these stories and, and much that is fascinating. Mm. Mm. So one story that we can learn from has to do with Heracles. And I think a lot of our listeners are probably more familiar with Heracles as he's known as Hercules. Yes. Um, maybe, maybe I'll ask you how his name changed from Heracles to Hercules as mm. a starting point. Sure. So Hercules is simply the Latinized form of right. the name. And that happens with so many of the Greek heroes and gods that there's a, a Latin equivalent to the Greek name. So a lot of us are probably familiar with the um, figure of Heracles, I'll call him, as uh, a hero of great strength. So he's the ultimate strong man in Greek myth. He's um, hefty and muscly and he can lift extraordinary weights and do extraordinary things. And he's often depicted on Greek vases doing these extraordinary things. He's best known for what are called the Twelve Labours. And these were tasks that were set uh, to Heracles um, to uh, enable him to become immortal. If he could do these 12 tasks, he would become immortal because he was, in fact, the uh, son of Zeus and a mortal woman, which means that he was only half divine. He was what we call a demigod. So in order to achieve full immortality, he had to complete these tasks um, they're incredible stories in themselves, but what they show is that Heracles was incredibly capable. He had innate resources of strength. Even as a baby, it is said, he, he was incredibly strong and everyone knew he wasn't an ordinary child. The problem with that is because he was the product of Zeus and a mortal woman, not Zeus's divine wife, Hera, he, uh, he was disliked by his divine mother, Hera, and she tried to get rid of him on a number of occasions. So he, he had a divine enemy. 
in Hera, and that, that leads to great problems for Heracles. So what were some of the 12 labours that he had to fulfil? So uh, there are some interesting ones. He had to uh, take the uh, belt from the Amazonian queen, so he had to actually fight the Amazonian women and retrieve the belt from the, the queen herself. He had to travel down to the underworld, to the land of the dead, and uh, tackle the monster who lived down there, the guard dog known as Cerberus, who had three heads and lots of serpent tails. And he had to bring that guard dog back to, to the living, the realm of the living. He also had to do some more ordinary tasks, like clean, uh, clean some stables known as the Aegean stables. Um, very famous story of how he diverted the river to wash out the stables. So he was not only tremendously strong, but he was also very intelligent in how he used his strength. And that shows that he had some personal resources already. Um, he was uh, always willing to tackle these tasks. He knew that he could do them if he applied himself. So that shows that he was, uh, he believed in himself and had um, a positive attitude towards accomplishing these tremendously difficult things. Mm. And of course, inherent in the definition of resilience, as you've already covered, is the idea of adversity. Mm. And so um, there wasn't only just adversity in terms of the 12 labours that mm. he sought to complete, but also with what happened after he completed these labours. So he had been promised immortality, mm. but it didn't quite work out that way. It didn't, that's right. And this is what um, is explored in a fascinating play by Euripides called Heracles. So at the end of the labours, Heracles returns home to his family and uh, he's welcomed by his family, uh, but the goddess Hera has other plans for Heracles. She doesn't want to see him now have a happy life reunited with his family. So she sends a uh, form of madness upon Heracles. She inspires this madness in him. And as a result of that, he, he commits a terrible crime. He actually kills his wife and his children. He's completely under the influence of Hera at this time. It's important that we recognize that this is not Heracles' uh, action as such. Um, he's been forced to do it by the goddess. And when he awakens from this mad state, he realises what he has done and he is he's absolutely gutted. He's, he's just grief-stricken that this could have happened to him. He understands that it wasn't him uh, as such, but the goddess. But, but nonetheless, it was his hands who did the deed. And that's the essence of the tragedy. Now, the question for Heracles is, what does he do? with this. He's, he's committed a terrible crime for which he, he should be punished, and yet he did it by his, his own hands and yet was influenced by a goddess. So it's a very complex situation. What is interesting is how he finds the resilience to survive this, this terrible situation. And the factors that come into play are exactly what resilience research tells us are, are likely to help. So his friend arrives from Athens, his friend Theseus, and Theseus says to Heracles, Heracles, you must remember this is not your fault. You really didn't do this. It was Hera. And Theseus then offers Heracles a way out. And he says to Heracles, you can come and live with me in Athens and establish a new life. We will look after you. We recognize what has happened to you and you will be honored as a hero in Athens. 
So that provides Heracles with a way out. But Heracles himself needs to come to that realisation and he does that through recognising that he's, he's not um, a bad person inherently, that he can be hopeful about his future and that there are prospects for him. So he says at one point, and it's a very powerful line, that is, I will endure life. He recognises that he's never going to be the same. He will always feel grief for his wife and his children. He feels hurt by the gods that they caused this trouble for him. But nonetheless, life is worth living and he will endure, he says, and he commits himself to that action. He says, I will go to Athens. I will persevere. And that's a very powerful moment in the play. And the final scene, when Heracles, the great strong man, is reduced to just this limping man who is resting on his friend's shoulder and limping off the stage, shows us that we may never be quite the same after a traumatic event. We may never have the same resources of strength. We will always feel tremendous grief, but that that shouldn't stop us from persevering with life, and that's what Heracles does. It's quite incredible. What a wonderful statement too, Mm. I will endure life. Mm. Mm. It's very powerful. Mm. Yeah. So another character who we're going to explore is that of Demeter. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, that's right, Demeter. Okay. <laughs> Demeter's fascinating too. She She's the goddess of grain and agriculture. And she had a child by Zeus named Persephone. And what I'd like to talk about is the Homeric hymn to Demeter, which is a song of praise of this goddess Demeter and what she achieved. So what happened... Um, after Demeter had this this daughter with Zeus, is that Zeus promised uh, the daughter to Hades, who's god of the underworld. And Hades wanted a wife, and Zeus said, all right, you can have Persephone. Now, no one in their right mind wants to be married to the god of the underworld, the god of the (laughs) dead. It's not a very pleasant prospect. So uh, Hades, knowing this, decided he would have to abduct Persephone. The, the marriage wouldn't happen willingly. So when Persephone's in this beautiful field of flowers and she's enjoying the sunshine and she's picking the blossoms and putting them in her basket, a great chasm opens up in the earth and Hades rides up in his chariot and snatches Persephone and abducts her and drags her down to the underworld. And poor Persephone, of course, being a young woman, is crying out and screaming for her mother. And Demeter hears the sounds of her daughter calling out and is very distressed and starts searching for her everywhere. But of course, Persephone has long gone down under the earth. Now, what Demeter then does is start a a very detailed search um, for her daughter. And she goes and she questions the gods. Who saw what happened? Where is my daughter? No one will give her a straight answer. And this this is aggravating Demeter's grief. Demeter uh, lives with this feeling of grief for a very long time. She um, resists taking uh, part in the activities of the gods. She refuses to, um, to be involved in their company any longer. And she lives among mortals on the earth. 
She acts as a, a sort of stepmother for a young child and helps to raise him. And she teaches the humans some important rites about life and death, which come to be known as the Eleusinian Mysteries. So she, she starts up her own cult um, in, in effect. The important point, I suppose, to, to note is that she never forgets her daughter. She is ever hopeful that she will reconnect with her daughter and that this, in a way, leads Demeter on her own path of self-discovery, both religious and emotional, in the sense that she she finds a way to keep on living and interacting with people despite being grief-stricken. Ultimately, uh, she decides to use the powers that she has to insist that Zeus reunite her with her daughter. So being the goddess of grain and agriculture, she stops making things grow. And the whole earth is afflicted by a terrible drought. Animals start dying because they don't have feed. The people start dying. And Zeus gets worried that Demeter is actually going to um, wipe out the race of mankind. So he agrees to let Demeter and Persephone be reunited. So Persephone is brought up from the land of the dead and mother and daughter are reunited. And it's a really touching scene when uh, when they are reunited. I might just read you a little bit of it because mm. it's it's so lovely. So they they journey up from the dead and Persephone arrives back on the earth. They were brought to a halt where fair garlanded Demeter was waiting in front of her fragrant temple and when she saw them she rushed forward like a maenad on the shady forested mountain. Persephone, on her side, when she saw her mother's lovely eyes, leapt down from the chariot and ran and fell about her neck in embrace. But even as Demeter held the child in her arms, her heart suddenly suspected some trick and she was very afraid. What she's afraid of is that she knows that Persephone has eaten some of the food down in the underworld, so she won't be able to return to Earth uh, forever. And because Persephone... Uh, had eaten some pomegranate seeds. She was only allowed to return to the earth for two-thirds of the year and then had to spend the remaining one-third of the year back down in the underworld with Hades. And that explains the seasons and the seasonal cycle. So the idea is that when Demeter and Persephone are reunited, it is spring and summer and everything is bountiful and growing and mother and daughter are happy and reunited. And when it is the colder months and nothing is happening, that's when poor Persephone is down with Hades. What I think is beautiful about this story is that there is a fundamental change in the relationship between Demeter and Persephone. It's not the same relationship as it used to be, um, in the sense that they are not always able to be together. And Demeter knows that, but she adjusts, and that's resilience. That, that is a recognition that things may not be the same, but you can still make the best you can of a, of a changed situation. And for Persephone too, she's resilient in recognising that she may not always be able to be with her mother and that married life has fundamentally changed her, but for some part of the year they're together. It's quite quite lovely. doesn't really paint married life very it well, does it? It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> the Greeks weren't too positive about marriage. <laughs> <laughs> 
What mm. I really enjoyed in particular about your telling is that obviously we are much more familiar with the name Persephone and with her story. So it's really lovely to hear about her mother's struggle yes. and her grief yes. over the loss of her daughter. Absolutely. And, and to hear that she never gave up hope in being reunited with her. Yes, yes. And hopefulness for the future is a critical attribute to have in being resilient, knowing that things will change, things can shift. Um, the, the, the disastrous situation you find yourself in is not perpetual. It, it may only be for that time, for that moment. Um, it's, it's a really good message. Mm. Mm. So another name that listeners might be familiar with is that of Prometheus. Mm. So Prometheus is a word that has been used throughout popular culture and it's also a word that has been claimed by the sciences in all manners. And from what I have tended to understand about that term is that it's been associated with the advancement of humankind and um, just human progress. So that's the reputation. What's the story behind Prometheus? Well, actually, the reputation is quite in line with the story, so that's good. <laughs> so Prometheus is another fascinating character. He is, his name actually means foresight, um, and that's interesting in itself. Um, uh, he's credited with with having uh, a great intelligence and and anticipating events and accommodating them or preparing for them. So in Greek myth, traditionally, he's thought of as a sort of divine trickster. And he's famous for two things. The first one is that he tricked uh, Zeus in establishing uh, the traditions around the sacrifice of meat as a as a way to honor the gods. So he, um, he wrapped up uh, two parcels of meat. The first was bones wrapped in fat, and the other was a parcel of meat. And he asked uh, Zeus to choose which one he would prefer. And Zeus, looking at the delicious sort of tantalizing fat, chose that parcel rather than the meat. And that meant that from thereafter, man would sacrifice the bones and the fat to the gods and burn those on the fire. And the, the smoke would rise up as an offering to the gods and the gods could smell that offering. But the meat then was reserved for man, uh, for his health and for his nutrition. So in that way, Prometheus did a great, did us a great service in that he established that we um, get the best of the food. But he also, um, his second trick was to steal fire from the gods. And he did that for humankind and for the benefit of humankind, knowing how much we would need it for warmth, for cooking, for technology, and so on. So he concealed fire in a fennel stalk, and he brought it down from the realm of the gods to earth and gave it to man. And that enabled us to do so many things. Now, poor Prometheus um, is punished by Zeus for these tricks. Zeus doesn't forget anything. So Zeus had Prometheus bound to a column, or in some versions, a rock. And each day an eagle would come and eat out Prometheus's liver. And overnight, Prometheus's liver would grow back again. And the next day, the same thing would happen again. So it's perpetual torment and perpetual punishment being inflicted upon Prometheus for these tricks. In, in Aeschylus's play on this subject, and Aeschylus was a dramatic playwright of ancient um, Athens of the 5th century, it's called Prometheus Bound. 
sure people have heard of it. Prometheus is shown being subjected to this eternal punishment by Zeus. What is fascinating about the way Aeschylus portrays Prometheus is that we are very sympathetic to Prometheus. He was, after all, the one who helped us, humans. Um, So when Prometheus talks about his physical bondage and his torment, he's incredibly critical of Zeus. And that's, that's quite remarkable to hear, that the god, Zeus, who is meant to be the, the father of all the gods and meant to be revered and respected, is actually being very vocally criticised in this dramatic play that would have taken part as, as part of a religious festival. So I might just read you a, a, just a couple of lines from Prometheus Bound so you can hear just how critical Prometheus is. He says, You ask why he tortures me. Hear now the reason. He's talking about Zeus. No sooner was he established on his father's throne than he began to award various offices to the different gods, ordering his government throughout. Yet no care was in his heart for miserable men, and he was fain to blot out the whole race and in their stead create another. None save me opposed his purpose. I dared. I rescued mankind into the heavy blow that was to cast them into Hades. Therefore, I am bowed down by this anguish, painful to endure and pitiable to behold. So he's well aware that he's being, he's being punished by Zeus, unfairly, really, just for helping mankind. Now, on the subject of resilience, this play has a lot to say, I think. And one of the most interesting points is that despite Prometheus's physical torment and his physical bondage, he remains intellectually defiant, intellectually free, and defiant until the end. So he knows that ultimately his situation will change and that he did a good thing for mankind, and he believes in that. He's got such conviction. So Zeus can't change that. Zeus can punish him physically, but Zeus won't change Prometheus's mind. And I think that gives us a powerful message about how even when we find ourselves in situations of, that, that are terrible from a physical point of view, when we're suffering physically, um, our bodies are in pain, um, if we can keep part of ourselves and try to, to keep part of ourselves intellectually free of that and know that we will come through it um, and that we can be strong intellectually, uh, that can be a help. It's not easy, of course, but... Prometheus has given us a wonderful example of defiance in the face of of physical hardship. Mm. Mm. So do you think of these figures, Heracles, Demeter and Prometheus, in trying times? I do, actually. Um, But I think um, for the ancient Greeks, they told these stories probably at times or made reference to these stories at times when they were in difficulty, when they wanted to look for an example of someone who had overcome great difficulty and also just in talking about these figures and these examples and these stories, we can draw on them, draw lessons from them and that can be really helpful. So yes, I do I do apply them in my own life but I, I also think they're stories for everyone in terms of of giving some valuable lessons um, to humanity as a whole. And that's why they continue to be retold and reinvented and reworked, even in the modern era, because they touch on themes that are so such a central part of humanity and our experience 
grief, love, pain, fate, um, all the loss, all of those issues are as alive today as they ever were. Mm. Mm. Yes, even though some of the events and um, I guess actions that occur mm. in the stories are ones that we can't quite relate, relate to, to in terms of, you know, being bound to a column and having your liver pecked mm. out by an eagle every day. Mm. Um, but yes, as you say, there are certainly themes and emotions and just some very core experiences that mm. are universal and timeless. Yes. Yeah. Suffering's always been there in whatever form it's taken. And of course, the reasons um, for that suffering have been interpreted differently over the centuries. The Greeks saw it as a divine punishment sometimes um, in a way that we probably don't today. But as you say, the, um, the themes that emerge in terms of how to uh, overcome suffering, um, the, the resources that are drawn upon are very much in line with what we've observed in resilience research, which is fascinating. It is fascinating. <laughs> Sonia Persinidis, thanks very much for talking to me about resilience and ancient Greek mythology. Thank you so much, Ivana. Better Things is brought to you by the College of Arts and Social Sciences at the Australian National University. This show is produced by me, Ivana Ho. The theme music is One More Time by Fab Beat. Be sure to tell your friends and your frenemies about Better Things and subscribe in your preferred podcasting app. If you're looking for another excellent thing to listen to, may I recommend episode 5 of our sister podcast, This Academic's Life. It features politics lecturer Dr Kim Hung, who put theory into practice in running for politics in 2016. Tune in next time for more insights on how to approach the world to live a better life. Ladies and gentlemen.